0: welcome to the first episode of mainly history for the year 2021 it's a new year for all of us and i look forward to bringing you a thrilling lineup of conversations about mostly maine and mainly history there will be in our future and in no particular order sex piracy art and leisure i know that sounds like categories of a quiz show but it's also just a sample what's in store for our brave new year. Our opening show will sound completely unfamiliar to all of you. A group of aggrieved Americans feeling that their rights were being trampled on by an uncaring and maybe even godless government journeyed to Washington, D.C., with a list of big demands to lay before Congress. If they didn't get what they wanted, maybe they'd even consider secession. This action didn't work out quite as they intended, and in the end, backfired spectacularly. I'm talking, of course, about the Hartford Convention. Just over 200 years ago, delegates from all the New England states gathered in Hartford, Connecticut to, they hoped, bring about major changes to the United States Constitution. But nothing worked out as they hoped, and since 1815, The affair has been misunderstood and condemned. But what were the participants really trying to accomplish? Why would some New Englanders be ready to argue in favor of seceding from the new nation? And what if, maybe, they had a point? Connecticut causing drama? Rhode Islanders traveling outside of their state? Mainers complaining about tyranny that didn't originate in Massachusetts? Twilight Zone theme song is copyrighted, so we'll just have to start this show our way. My guest today is Matthew Mason, professor of history at Brigham Young University. He is the author of two books, Slavery and Politics in the Early American Republic, and Apostle of Union, a political biography of Edward Everett. Matt, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. I look forward to talking.
0: So the Hartford Convention is arguably both little known, and also overhyped and misunderstood all at the same time. Uh, it's been pointed to by different people as an early example of secessionism or of an arch conservative attempt to break up the union among other things. But very briefly starting with the basics, what was the Hartford convention?
1: Well, it was a convention that grew from something like the grassroots. It was in the middle of the war of 1812, That turned out to be some of the later stages of the War of 1812. The Federalist Party, which was deeply opposed to the War of 1812, for reasons I'm sure we'll talk about, organized town meetings, and those town meetings resolutions called for a range of remedies to the war uh, as part of protesting against the war. Those ranged into uh, territory including seceding from the Union, if you couldn't stop the war, uh, and all the things that it represented to leave the Union, but it ranged for a whole variety of other proposed remedies to the policies that had led to the ultimately disastrous policy from their point of view of the War of 1812. And out of that, out of those town meetings, uh, state legislatures acted to call for a convention uh, that ended up meeting in Hartford in late 1814 to discuss the range of proposed remedies from from those petitions and ended up passing a series of resolutions that fell well short of calling for secession, but called for some very revealing things about kind of reorienting the Union. So in in many ways, it was kind of a moderated version of the grassroots politics that had produced it. Thank you for that. Now, let's
0: back up. The Federalist Party was opposed to the War of 1812. Uh, and I think, you know, many Americans, when, when we think about anti-war protesters, we think about you know, the, the opposition to the war in Vietnam, were these federalists that you're speaking of, were these, were these peaceniks, were these sort of 19th century hippies? I mean, who are we dealing with here?
1: Yeah, there were, uh, not a lot of fantastic haircuts or lack of haircuts or other hippieish sort of things about these folks. I mean, it w- it had its grassroots element, but not to the same, uh, degree uh, as those others. It was based in, um, similarly kind of morally charged objections to the war. Federalists, especially in New England, did not object to the war simply because they thought it was kind of inexpedient, or America was unprepared to fight that war, or as very often passed for anti-war sentiment during a war like Vietnam, we're losing the war, (laughs) therefore we're opposed to it. There was a deep principled argument Against the war amongst uh, the Federalists, that in many ways does echo some of the better-known anti-war anti-war movements. For them, the ultimate moral argument uh, against the war was that it was an unjust war. Americans, like so many other people in the West, Christian tradition, believe that you don't start a war of aggression; that would make your war an unjust war. And the list of grievances that the Democratic Republican Party, the Madison administration, Listed as reasons for launching that war seemed in, completely insufficient to them. And so it it seemed ultimately their moral case boiled down to the fact that it was an unjust war. So in that way, it had some parallels to some of the most committed anti-war protesters were better known for, or that are better known to us.
0: You mentioned partisanship. So I'm gonna ask you to expand a bit on that. For those of our audience who are not steeped in early 19th century party politics. So you mentioned the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans as these two major political parties. The Hartford Convention, as we discussed, was was very much pushed by the Federalist Party. If you were living in the United States, uh, say in Maine in in 1812, during the start of the War of 1812, and if somebody who, who said they supported the Federalist Party, what kind of policies did the Federalists support and what made them so appealing to New Englanders at this time?
1: Very good question. This, As it was manifested in the 18-teens, this party struggle had its roots a couple decades earlier in the 1790s. And some of the elements of that party struggle that are relatively well-known have to do with things like banking and economic policy. Those were less well-known before the musical Hamilton. Now everyone can quote, everyone at least that I run with, like my daughters, (laughs) can quote whole rap battles about tariffs and banking policy, and so forth. But the most relevant to the struggles that led to the Hartford Convention were the struggles over foreign policy. The political rivalry between the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans took shape at the same time that Europe, and therefore the world, as influenced by European empires, was divided over the French Revolution and its fallout. And so pretty quickly, you start to see the battle lines being drawn between Federalists who tended to favor a policy friendlier to England and were deeply suspicious of the French Revolution as it unfolded, and then found their suspicions completely verified by, in their minds certainly, by uh, Napoleon becoming emperor, kind of the idea that anarchy had led to the ultimate form of tyranny, and they were more attracted to the British constitutional monarchy kind of model, not that they mostly were monarchists, but they liked the idea of kind of balanced ordered liberty, as opposed to the Democratic Republicans, who uh, were much friendlier to the French Revolution and thought of it as, especially early on, but even deep into it as carrying out the ideas of the American Revolution. And so in the, by the 18-teens, that had kind of manifested itself surrounding questions of trade and Americans out on the out on the seas, as this conflict between Britain and Napoleonic France kept carrying on and carrying on. Americans were trying, the American policy was originally to try to trade with both sides as a neutral. Neither side, neither the French under Napoleon nor the British, found that acceptable, to trade with our enemy, is to aid our enemy. So they passed a series of measures banning American trade, restricting American trade, and in the case of the British, we're starting to seize American ships. The British also had the practice of seizing American sailors, many of whom were British immigrants that they declared were had a perpetual allegiance to Britain, and therefore they impressed them into the Royal Navy. So issues of trade, but also this business of impressment of American sailors led the kind of list of grievances that the Madison administration and their supporters in Congress cited for the reasons for the war, but the Federalists who leaned more f- friendly towards Britain and were deeply suspicious of Napoleon in particular saw America by declaring war against Britain in 1812, kind of the most dangerous part of the war when Napoleon was had all the momentum, was even invading Russia, seemed to be siding with Napoleon. And that, so that not only tied to that long history, I just tried to lay out of the way in which foreign policy impacted uh, domestic political partisanship, but also it played into the moral argument I, I was mentioning earlier. To many Federalists, Napoleon was the Antichrist, spoken of uh, in, say, the Book of Revelation, Like that had arrogated all that power to himself and crowned himself emperor, on and on. He, if anybody in history, had represented Antichrist to these Federalists, it was Napoleon. And here's their administration waging war against Britain in favor of Napoleon. All of that added up to certainly Americans not uniting around a foreign policy, Americans being even more bitterly divided by foreign policy than they were, in many ways, uh, than they were over domestic policy.
0: And it also seems odd to me that with the Madison administration talking about free trade and sailors' rights, New England was the the headquarters of much of American shipping in the 1810s, certainly before the the War of 1812 was, and so you would think if this war was strictly about free trade and the, the health of the U.S. maritime economy, that the New England states would be the most in favor of the war. And of course, that was the the opposite.
1: Right. No, you make you make a very good point because that's the rallying cry of the Madison administration and their supporters that they are fighting for free trade and sailors' rights and. They are targeting Great Britain, which they saw as the ultimate threat to both of those things. The British, with their orders in council, which restricted American trade, declared them that they were not neutrals, but also this business of impressing American sailors. That's with the sailors' rights aspect to that rallying cry. But the key context, and you raise an excellent question, and I think the key context to answering it is that before they waged war, the Democratic-Republicans preferred strategy was a trade embargo uh, against Britain. If Britain is gonna pass these orders in council, if uh, restricting American trade, if they're gonna impress American sailors, we will pass an embargo on trade against Great Britain, betting on the proposition that that would weaken the British at this critical moment as they're struggling against Napoleon more than it would weaken the United States. And that was Jefferson. That was his policy. The Jefferson administration began the embargo, and then Madison continued it. And so the rhetoric is in favor of American trade. The policy ends up being to restrict American trade with the British, with that embargo, which seemed to many Federalists to be highly selective and unjust in the ways I just described because of their hatred of Napoleon, but also devastated New England's trading economy. Uh, I mean, I've read accounts of grass growing in the streets of Boston uh, and other uh, ports, um, mass unemployment of the commercially oriented maritime economy that you described. And so when embargo turns to war, there is this foundation of deep distrust, not only morally, but in terms of the economic impact of the Democratic-Republicans, Federalist uh, New Englanders could never believe that anything good economically, morally, politically could come from the Democratic-Republican regimes.
0: I should add the embargo produced one of, I think, my favorite political cartoons from from this period of time. It was a pro-embargo cartoon in which the embargo and the uh, Madison administration is depicted as a gigantic tortoise. And... And it is biting like the butt of some sort of a smuggler who yells out, oh, grab me. And then there is some sort of pro-administrative tortoise wrangler who is cheering this animal on. Uh, And the, the smuggler is trying to sneak a cargo of goods onto a ship with a Union Jack on it. And I don't know why the administration was depicted as a gigantic, aggressive tortoise, but there you have it.
1: Yeah, I can. I I agree with you. That is a fantastic among many from this era from which to choose. It's hard to argue with that as the the best. And yeah, I don't also. I also don't know the deep symbolic nature of the of the tortoise. Although I have my suspicions that my alma mater, the University of Maryland, may have well have adopted their turtle mascot at a similar kind of moment, trying to convey a certain message that is now lost in the 21st century. When I say fear the turtle, the the Maryland slogan, people look at me quizzically because they generally don't.
0: (laughs) So this is the question for the audience. If you know, please chime in on Twitter at mainly history. If you have insights into the pro embargo political roots of tortoise or terrapin imagery, Uh, we would love to hear from you. So we should also mention in terms of the, the, the War of 1812 uh, going forward, there is the, the aspect certainly that explains why the pro-war forces were overwhelmingly from Southern and Western states. We should add the desire for westward expansion at the expense of Indigenous nations and the oftentimes exaggerated reports in, in much of the, the American press that the British were supporting indigenous resistance movements, most famously led by Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa, the, the Shawnee brothers in, in the Midwest. This was fueling both the uh, pro-war sentiment and of course the, the drive for war. And the, the Federalist Party, by this point, well, it had anti-expansionist elements in it, which made it uh, unusual for its time.
1: Yeah, that's a very important point. I mean, there's these maritime angles that I was talking about to the Democratic-Republican Program and um, the Federalist reaction against it, but it, the counterpart to that, or in addition to that, is these these questions of Western expansion and dispossession of natives, and especially this highly charged accusation that the British were out there meddling with Native Americans to stir them up against the Americans. I mean, the basic reason that that was exa- exaggerated, as you described, was that Native Americans didn't need the British to tell them that the Americans were a threat. Right? I mean, the British it had dawned on them before that the, these ex, uh, aggressively expansionist Americans were the ultimate threat to their sovereignty and their ability to maintain their land. But you've also captured why Westerners, people like Henry Clay, were so important and vociferous as elements of the Democratic-Republican coalition that took America into the War of 1812, all of which was suspect from the New England Federalist point of view.
0: Thinking about who supported the Federalists, they were dominant above all in New England. Every New England state, plus the District of Maine in Massachusetts, sent at least one delegate to the Hartford Convention in the District of Maine. That would be Stephen Longfellow Jr., the father of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. What kinds of people in New England would be supportive of the efforts of Stephen Longfellow and others at the Hartford Convention.
1: Yeah, Maine is interesting in this regard. I don't have to tell you or your audience that Maine is interesting, but I think it's really revealing because when we talk in broad terms, like New England opposed the War of 1812, that's crazy, right? I mean, not everyone, I live in Utah, and uh, even though it's a red state, we're a divided state, just like so many other states right now. And Maine, in many ways, epitomizes that so that if you look at a place like the District of Maine, you were, by and large, much more likely to ally with the Federalists if you were kind of oriented politically, but also economically towards Boston, if you had trading interests. Alan Taylor's book, The Liberty Men and the Great Proprietors, really is the best analysis I know of the political cultural rift in early Maine, between kind of frontier style squatter people making claims to the land that call themselves liberty men, and these great proprietors with interests centered in Boston, and therefore a love hate relationship with Boston, depending on whether you were Federalist, love Boston, or Democratic Republican hated Boston as kind of colonial overlords sort of situation. But there's, so there's all these kind of layers of politics that make Maine, to me, highly representative of the divisiveness of the War of 1812, not just nationally, but within regions or even districts of the district of Maine within Massachusetts. But in the broadest outlines, that's the best analysis I've seen of what would make someone a lie Federalist as opposed to Democratic-Republican.
0: That's a good point. And we should reiterate that Stephen Longfellow lived in Portland, and it was those coastal cities like that that had more people involved in this maritime economy in various forms. So you mentioned, uh, so we're at the War of 1812. The War of 1812 begins. The Madison administration declares war in the summer of, of 1812. Much of the Federalist Party in particular was opposed to it by 1814. Most Americans don't know very much about the War of 1812 at all. It gave us the national anthem, and Andrew Jackson won the Battle of New Orleans. And so clearly, as many of my students would say, what's so, what's so controversial about that? Why would the war be unpopular, particularly in New England by 1814?
1: Yeah, uh, I will add to that, that uh, this last week, Amer- many Americans learned that the previous time the Capitol was breached was by the British, but most people didn't know that of the <laughs> British in 1814 when they uh, invaded Washington, D.C. So that, was, that added a third element to the popular consciousness of the War of 1812. But yeah, I mean, that seems unobjectionable. It's kind of a forgotten war, other than those elements you've mentioned. But yeah, I mean, it's easy to kind of see why a Federalist chieftain, your Fisher Ameses of the world, who had been kind of disposs- not kind of, definitely dispossessed politically from their position of power in the Adams administration, would be bearing grievances against um, the Democratic Republicans. But to me, as I, as I did research for what became my first book, I was struck by the grassroots nature of the anti war sentiment and the extreme rhetoric that I saw more at the grassroots than amongst the leaders uh, of the of the New England Federalist party and some of the strongest rhetoric I encountered was from Federalist preachers then just like the newspapers uh, many ministers uh, of religion did not take very many pains to hide their partisanship and delivered political sermons and then printed those and New Englanders were especially habitual in publishing their sermons. But I encounter some of the strongest rhetoric against the Democratic Republicans in some of these political sermons, including a strong anti-slavery edge to them. One of the people I became most fascinated with was Elijah Parish, a Federalist preacher in Newburyport, Massachusetts, who um, kind of notoriously, it, I saw it reprinted and reacted to in many newspapers, said, um, this war is so immoral. That we should declare an honorable neutrality here in new england sit this war out and let the southern heroes fight their own battles and guard against not only the british invasion but the just vengeance of their lacerated slaves uh here's a preacher cheering on a slave insurrection as part of the disorder and violence he hoped southerners would be bringing on themselves by uh by making this movement towards war uh and That sort of rhetoric got me fascinated in the degree to which kind of the politics of slavery was a kind of a nuclear option rhetorically by which many people, especially at the kind of lower levels of the Federalist hierarchy, expressed their deep grievances with this war. I'm glad you bring that up. And we're going to talk
0: more about the assault on slavery that was a part of the the Hartford Convention. And uh, tipping my hand, I mean, I happen to agree I think that in many respects, the War of 1812 was an immoral war, personally, in terms of what its actual consequences were and why it was by and large fought. Returning to the war for a moment, despite my caricature, which it, it would behoove us to mention, right, the War of 1812 was a disaster on the battlefields for the Americans for most of the war. The capital, the British burned down Washington, D.C. The United States lost most of the battles. And as we'll get to the, the Battle of New Orleans for all of its discussion It happened in January of 1815 after a peace treaty had been signed. And arguably it had the effect of nailing a half court shot in a basketball game after the buzzer goes off and it doesn't count. Like, it doesn't matter.
1: That's what makes the, but then in your analogy, that half court shot, meaningless as it might be, is what makes the sports center top 10 and therefore shapes the American memory consciously, Uh, done by the Warhawks, people in favor of the war. Aha! We may have have fought this war to a draw. The the Treaty of Ghent that ended it may represent kind of a draw at best, and we had a series of disasters, but um, you think about the two of the three things we said uh, earlier represent kind of the bare minimum of popular acquaintance with the war. Two of those three represent great victories, right? The, The Fort McHenry, this flag still flew. We withstood British assault. Leaving out the fact that was they were uh, attacking Baltimore after having destroyed the capital and occupied the capital. But yeah, then this uh, I love your analogy. This post-treaty uh, half-court shot victory that was a somewhat shocking victory by Andrew Jackson and his troops over the British army helped shape a much rosier memory of the war than it actually was experienced by most Americans in military, in military terms. Most, as you mentioned, most of the battles, especially fought on land, were American defeats uh, during this they war. They were. With
0: the, the note, arguably, you could say that the most consequential American victory in the War of 1812 was in 1813, the Battle of the Thames uh, against Tecumseh the military leader of the, the indigenous alliance and his defeat and death in battle broke the back of native american resistance and the war of 1812 is the really the last instance in which native americans had the backing of a major foreign, a, a strong foreign power against uh, american imperial expansion and the last time that native americans represented what could credibly be called you know a national security threat
1: yeah that's an excellent point to which i would add Andrew Jackson's trumpeted victory over the British at New Orleans followed a series of victories over Native Americans in, during the War of 1812, in which he was able to force them to sign the unequal treaties that led to the essentially the creation of what would become the Cotton Kingdom in the post-war period by extinguishing Native American claims and, and sovereignty over that land. So there's a southern counterpart to what you were talking about that also shaped the legacy of the of the War of 1812. It's really only after the War of 1812 that you get the great cotton boom that led to so many of the distinctive features of antebellum slavery that we know.
0: Absolutely. Um, Without so question. yeah, most of
1: the land battles involving the British were disasters for the Americans, but these uh, victories over Native Americans were highly consequential in the ways that you were descri- describing.
0: And a a last mention of Fort McHenry. I lived in Baltimore, a wonderful place, and the Maryland Historical Society, which is there, which is also a fantastic organization. Uh, It's one of the best state historical societies I've ever had the pleasure of of working in or visiting. But the national historic site for uh, Fort McHenry. I have to say, I was very disappointed in their presentation of the War of 1812, almost entirely ignored the issues west of the Appalachian Mountains, mm. and the massive importance of conflicts over land, and especially between the the indigenous uh, and then allied British against the United States when talking about the War of 1812. They almost totally ignored it and talked very much about you know, sailors' rights, and then Fort McHenry, and then the national anthem. And obviously, I understand the national anthem is the most relevant thing to come out of Fort McHenry, but still, this is my my airing of my grievance there. Do better, National Park Service. You're normally so so good. So c- circling back to to Hartford, then, in the convention itself, when these delegates gathered in in December of eighteen fourteen. Tell us, what were they hoping to accomplish when they gathered at this meeting?
1: I read it as a twofold purpose for the political leaders who gathered. So these are the party elite who are gathering in response to this half orchestrated and half grassroots effort of all these town meeting protests that I mentioned earlier, as then filtered through these state legislatures who sent delegates. One purpose that they had from the elite political point of view was to both channel and contain the popular outcry that had led to the convention in the first place that was represented in these protests, these town meetings and petitions. And so they had to find a way to respond to the deep grievances and propose remedies that were coming out of those petitions and town meetings, but also to try to fall well short of some of the more radical proposals that had been sent to them. But then um, the second purpose is related to that. They wanted to, because they themselves shared the grievances against the Democratic Republicans and the power that that party wielded that was represented in the fact that they were able to take America to war, to try to prevent that from ever happening again, to try to curtail Democratic Republican power going forward in a kind of renovated union and protect America from those things ever having take place again. And to me, those twin purpose is best represented by the the first couple of resolutions that they end up agreeing to out of the Hartford Convention. One is to repeal the three-fifths clause of the Constitution, the notorious by then clause that for the purposes of the House of Representatives and therefore the Electoral College Counted three out of every five slaves towards the population of that state, and therefore uh, added to their to Southern states' representation, both in the House of Representatives and in the Electoral College. That came from that call to abolish the three fifths clause and therefore curtail the power of slaveholders, came from many of these petitions, many of these town meeting resolutions. But calling for that to be uh, abolished, the the Constitution amended in that way was a more moderate response than, say, secession or uh, renovating the entire Constitution. Many of the most aggrieved Federalists had argued, you know what, the Constitution itself is fatally flawed. If it's going to lead to outcomes like the War of 1812, it itself is the problem, not certain features of it. So to call for amendments like, abolishing the three-fifths clause, or relative to some of the things you were saying earlier, uh, Ian, to make it harder to acquire new territories and to admit new states out in the West was a way of dealing with some of these grievances, but in a way that kind of moderated them. So I think some of those first couple of resolutions really reflect some of the purposes that they had uh, at at the Hartford Convention.
0: That's a good point. And we should add regarding secession, some of the most extreme New England secessionists were not invited to participate. Uh, right. Josiah Quincy, above all, as well as Timothy Dwight, aka Pope Dwight, and some of the, you know, what you might call the extreme New England nationalists.
1: Yeah, they were seen as, uh, as toxic politically by the people that gathered at, at Hartford. They uh, represented the more firebrand version of New England's grievances,
0: adding on to these grievances. So I I have them before me. Some of the other ones that are less well-remembered, clearly marked by the fact that every president was from Virginia, except for the one term, John Adams. And so they wanted all presidents to only serve one term and that each president had to be from a different state than his predecessor. Very much this sort of reaction against the the Virginia dynasties. Um, Right. Yeah. As is not always well remembered, that New England was arguably more politically marginalized around this time of the War of eighteen twelve than almost any point in, in United States history in terms of its its perceived interests and and the rest of the nations.
1: Yeah, and that's uh, that is highlighted by uh, that lesser known clause that you that you highlight. Many of our listeners may be thinking, "What on earth does the three fifths clause have to do with?" The War of 1812. And I admit that that's the way I felt when I first immersed myself doing the research in a lot of this rhetoric. It seemed a stretch. Now we're talking about slavery. I thought we were talking about war and peace and matters of national security. But the logic very much connected to what the point you were making about the Virginia dynasty. The logic went like this We had John Adams, those were the glory days for the Federalists, New England Federalists. And then you get a series of disastrous presidents, um, but you would never have had Thomas Jefferson elected president in the Electoral College without the three-fifths clause. That's right. Um, and it turns out they were right. If you took out three-fifths, if, if the enslaved population of Southern states counted as zero instead of three-fifths of that population, Adams actually would have won in the in the Electoral College, I think by a margin of five electoral votes, if I'm remembering right. So they, they took that kind of nugget that without the three-fifths clause, you wouldn't get Jefferson. Then without Jefferson, you would have never had the embargo. And mm-hmm. without Jefferson, you never would have had Madison, right? Madison served important positions in the Jefferson administration that then set him up to be president and people's expectations. Also, by the time Madison was president, you had new states like uh, Louisiana coming in. And so this has to do with not only the existing power of slaveholders, but in relation to the point you were making earlier, Ian, then the expanding power of slaveholders and their allies in the West. And so that's going to keep New England marginalized perpetually without all those things. You would have never had disastrous policies like the embargo or the war. So to them, going after westward expansion and new states, upsetting the balance of power, and going after the three-fifths clause, had to do with remedies that went to the root of the problem, not just addressing the kind of surface policies of the 18Ts, but trying to get to the radical causes of New England's marginalization. So those clauses, plus the one you mentioned, work together in this political argument.
0: Thank you for that. And your points are a great prelude for my next question, which is about this intersection of fairly garden variety concerns of political power and allocation of resources and questions of, of larger morality. You are, are arguably the most qualified person to speak to this, as your work has, has really dealt with this convergence among New England Federalists, of the questions of opposing slavery for sectional political considerations. By and large, uh, New England states had ended slavery, and so therefore politically did not benefit from it. But then there were other people in New England who opposed slavery on moral grounds. Right. And of course, there's going to be some of both considerations, but in your reading of the Federalist criticisms of slavery at this time, was it more based on arguments for, for human equality, or moral grounds, or was this more uh, on, in terms of uh, a political motivated campaign?
1: That's a great question. When I wrestled with uh, doing this research, when I continue to wrestle with, I will say, I'm not trying to be cheeky when I say the answer is yes, <laughs> um, by which I mean it begins with the, these intertwined considerations of slavery and political power. One of the most useful books I've ever used in terms of teaching on American slavery uh, that really has helped shape this insight is uh, David Wallstreicher's book, Slavery's Constitution,
2: Mm.
1: a somewhat recent book that deals with the intersections between questions of representation and power, The, the big ticket questions they were discussing at the Philadelphia Convention that became the Constitutional Convention of 1787. And also during the ratification debates of that constitution. All those big ticketed questions ended up being intertwined inextricably with slavery. I think it's um, overstating it to say that the U.S. Constitution was pro-slavery in the sense that it was meant to make a statement on hum- against human equality. But what it does, you couldn't talk about representation or taxation or balance of power within the union without talking about slavery ever from its founding forward. And so therefore, every time Americans end up talking about representation or taxation or balance of power within the union, they have to talk about slavery. So are they talking about those political issues? Are they talking about slavery? Then he ends up talking about both, right? I mean, the campaign, for instance, against the Three-Fifths Clause during the War of 1812 clearly begins with questions of power and representation. But then that opens the floodgates for these moral critiques of slavery. It's not in a vacuum that Elijah Parrish is cheering on a slave rebellion against these southern heroes, as he calls them. He's politically aggrieved, but he also sees them as the ultimate abusers of power, not only in the Union, but on their plantations. And to him, you can't separate those, and he's far from alone. So whenever Americans end up talking about slavery, even though it has come in from this other context, they end up talking about slavery with all its ramifications. That's what makes it so dangerous. That's why so many people, especially Democratic Republicans, were highly alarmed by this tactic of Federalists during the war. It's bad enough to oppose a war at its height. But it made it even worse to introduce the most divisive element of American politics as a tool in that campaign, because then that just opens up, now we're talking about slavery, I guess. So it ends up being both, even though it begins with that, those questions of politics. The Federalist Party in this period of time is leveling
0: various critiques at slavery uh, it seems to me, based on your work and others, that the Federalist Party is, certainly doesn't become a, a party in line with, say, the Republican Party of the 1850s, where opposition to slavery in some form or another is, is a major feature that animates most of what they do. Why was that? What was it about the Federalists that, that kept them from doing that?
1: Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it depends on what moment... In the Federalist Party's life that we're looking at early in the Federalist Party, even though they their base skewed northeast, they were rather, especially their leadership, rather restrained in using the politics of slavery in large part because they governed the Union. In the Adams administration especially, but during Washington's time, they were the power governing the Union, so they had every interest in preserving and uniting. It was only after they had given up on national power, and especially when that national power started to be wielded, in, as they saw it, against them by means of the embargo and the war, that they, many even of the leaders, decide, you know what, we're never going to capture national power again. So we may as well embrace a sectionalist policy to at least defend the interests and rights and relative power of our region within the union. It's only when parties and their leaders don't see a path to national governance that they embrace the idea of total sectionalism. Now, in that, they were kind of forerunners to, say, the Liberty Party or the Free Soil Party, and to some degree, the Republican Party. The Republican Party, when they're running John C. Fremont and Abraham Lincoln in 1856 and 1860, aren't really that concerned about getting Southern electoral votes. They are embracing a moderate version of a sectionalist appeal. But in many ways, I do see the Federalists, when they make that choice to go sectional instead of national, as in many ways forerunners of those later anti-slavery parties, even though I agree with your statement that anti-slavery politics was never as central to their platform. Do
0: you agree with the argument that's been expressed by uh, other historians of this period? For example, one of my favorite books, Rosemary Zagari, Revolutionary Backlash, and other scholars of this period and the Federalists who, who argue that the Federalists were very much opposed to the notion of equality by any modern understanding. And that they were deeply committed to this idea of of hierarchy and of, of certain natural inequalities. But that for the Federalists, what mattered was less biological features such as race or sex and much more questions of, for example, class. And so you have the Federalists doing well with the women of New Jersey who could vote could afford to pay the tax and so forth. Whereas the Democratic Republicans under Jefferson became gradually committed to this explicitly ideal of of equality, where property and class should not matter as much, but that they attach these biological qualifiers to citizenship. And does that ring true for you for this period of the War of 1812?
1: Yes, I agree 100% with that characterization, and i that's part of why we can't vote Federalists anymore. Like they were thoroughly old-fashioned. It wasn't only that they became kind of tarred with the stain of uh, treason as a result of the anti-war movement that led to the Hartford Convention. That's very often how we tell the tale of Federalists going away as a party. But another basic reason was they had these older school understandings of inequality based on ranks and society that were based on property. So they were very reluctant to embrace a kind of democratic ethos of appealing to the common man. Whereas the Jeffersonians and then their heirs in this regard, the Jacksonians had every reason, every interest in appealing to the common man by which they meant the common white man. So yeah, like in New Jersey, when you reform the the suffrage in this period to um, include white men voting, then you remove the loophole that allowed had allowed propertyed white women to vote. Similarly, when you embrace white manhood suffrage, you are disenfranchising free people of color who had voted and had generally voted Federalist, because as stuffy as these Federalists seem from the point of view of class and the way you've just described, they also were open to the idea of merit qualifying, and especially property holding, qualifying uh, free Black people to be able to vote. So you have these strange, it seems strange that these stuffy old Federalists would be seen as friendly to people of color and women who could actually vote but it had everything to do with the particular forms of inequality and equality that they embrace so I agree 100% with that
0: and that it makes it difficult for for Federalists to argue uh, against this rollback of the rights of for example propertyed women or, or citizens of color using any kind of egalitarian language since that just wasn't their primary concern
1: right uh, they would have uh, they argued that refinement and property, is what made one independent and therefore able to vote. But that ends up being a powerful argument that then Democratic Republicans who want to strip those people of the right to vote have to counter, and they counter it by making arguments like you just described, by making biological arguments. There's a Democratic Republican in New York State in 1821 when they roll back the rights of free Black people to vote who declared that African Americans are a peculiar people, incapable of exercising the franchise with any degree of independence. That argument incapable means no matter how wealthy or refined or educated someone like James Fortin in Philadelphia is, he should not be allowed to vote because of biology. And the same thing with women, that uh, biology rendered people incapable. Federalists were horrified by that, not because they were raging egalitarians, but because that was an alternative way of drawing distinctions in society that they had not embraced.
0: That's a good point. I know there's there's a number of people that, you know, my students, when they read Federalist rhetoric, where they sometimes they say, well, I really I want to like the Federalists more. And I think, oh, you don't like slavery, but it's not coming from this place of, of again, any sort of modern sense of universal human rights or anything like that.
1: The, probably the, the Federalist they might like the best is someone like Elijah Parrish, who was making these uh, principled and rather deeply aggrieved. I mean, they're pretty provocative stuff for a sermon. We call them for a slave rebellion. But he was, he did articulate kind of a thoroughgoing critique of slavery that made it so, in many ways, he worked in reverse. Because these Southerners, who he deeply resented on for so many reasons, were themselves abusing power in their households, what would you expect out of them but to abuse power on the national stage? So he kind of was working from that other inverse uh cause and effect in terms of his uh his argumentation he certainly there was a group of us at the society for historians of the early american republic a few years back uh who tried to form an elijah parish fan club and <laughs> uh, there are only three of us so far but oh uh, great he, he does have more of an appeal to modern sensibilities because of the kind of moral nature of his arguments
0: i will confess that I did not know who he was. And so I've also bonded with early Americanists over a love of arch-federalists. <laughs> I have a pair of Fisher Ames print socks that were given to me by a friend who we, we bonded over a, a mutual appreciation for, uh, for federalist secessionists and our disdain for the Jeffersonian imperialism of the War of 1812 and for, for New England secessionism. And so I
1: love that. I love that. And I would say I, I have not made a motion to this regard, but I would venture to guess that the Elijah Parrish fan club would accept as an kind of at least an adjunct member, anyone who's wearing Fisher Ames socks.
0: I will happily apply for admission to this club. And I would be honored if, if mainly history as a podcast could become the we can't be a mouthpiece, of course, for any single movement, but we would be certainly well wishers.
1: It sounds like a natural alliance. Um. Absolutely, absolutely. So
0: circling back to this Hartford Convention, which I'm going to tip my hand again that I'm one of the rare breed of modern Americans who say, you know what? I kind of, I agree with the Hartford Convention. I mean, I personally, I do. I think that the War of 1812 was a moral blight upon our nation. And so even though the Federalists were often frustrating and prickly, I have a soft spot for them. What exactly were the Hartford Convention delegates hoping would come from their demands?
1: Yeah, they hoped to be able to set the post-war agenda for reform of the American Union. They felt like they had staved off. They hoped they had staved off the secessionist threat from their most militant supporters, but they also... Had no interest in this just being some kind of symbolic gesture. They really did hope to be able to place on the agenda of Congress a series of constitutional amendments. That's ultimately what they wanted was constitutional amendments like the ones we've discussed surrounding the three-fifths clause or new states or presidential succession that would kind of restructure the union. They hoped in a way to lead to a kind of flurry of amendment activity that we associate with say the Bill of Rights or the reconstruction amendments or the progressive amendments. They were operating in a context in which that seemed possible. The constitution had not seemed like set in stone and unamendable. They just within people's memory uh, enacted 10 amendments to that constitution. So that's the ultimate policy outcome that they hoped for. The convention sent some delegates to Washington, D.C.
0: with their demands, and they get to the Capitol in January of 1815. And what happens next?
1: This whole movement ends with a whimper rather than than a bang. The timing was such that they arrived in Washington right about the same time as news of the Treaty of Ghent did, and then soon thereafter followed by news of the Battle of New Orleans. So they looked superfluous as well as faintly treasonous to this newly triumphant nation, ready to celebrate a great victory at New Orleans and a treaty that could have been worse with the Treaty of uh, of Ghent, and that's certainly the way. In the broad brushes that they went down in history uh, as a bunch of futile, at least borderline traitorous sort of sort of people, and as such, I agree with you that no matter how we think about the kind of proper limits of dissent during wartime, a group of people that produces a carefully reasoned set of propositions for. Kind of addressing root causes of the problems that they see with American government and expansion in the ways we've talked about is certainly not to be just dismissed in history, but that's certainly the context in which they operated and the way they brought that report has militated against that in American memory beginning at that moment. Even though the Hartford Convention was in some sense convened
0: to diffuse New England separatism. Do you see any plausible basis for New England separatism based on a a real regional identity at at this time in the 18-teens?
1: Yeah, that's a fascinating question. Many, certainly many of the opponents of the uh, Federalists, the Democratic Republicans, another one of my favorite political cartoons from this period. There are so many. But one's called, I think, Look Before You Leap. It had a collection of Federalist luminaries, including Josiah Quincy, very prominently caricatured ready to leap into the arms of George III because the sense was New England, a small region, there's no way they could make kind of an independent republic unless they had a colonial protector at the very least or re-allied with, with Britain. It's counterfactual, so I can't be wrong.
0: That's what makes I it so fun. Th-
1: I tend to think that's there's an element of truth in that, right? Uh, hmm. It that a small republic that's kind of economically specialized to the degree that New England was, likely would have had a very difficult time maintaining independence in a brawling world of competing empires and the then would be kind of stunted version of the American Republic. One element that makes that counterfactual convincing to me is the fate of the Republic of Texas. Texas, being Texas, had all kinds of pretensions (laughs) in the 1830s to being able to maintain their independence on the rest of the world, nobody's the boss of them. But within pretty short order, they realized that it was very difficult to maintain independence in this world of warring, competing empires without some kind of alliance, at uh, the very least, with a with a larger power that could help them make that independence good. And there, therefore, you get Texas annexation. So, ah, I think but
0: Texas did not have Harvard providing brain power for a new leading elite.
1: That's as definitely true. And uh, <laughs> they didn't have a lot of things that, uh, yes. that uh, New England did, including Elijah Parish. But uh, true. I do think there's an element of, as much as that is a political cartoon, I think there's an element of truth to that sense mm. that without at least some kind of federal arrangement with Britain, it would have been hard for New England to maintain any kind of independence. And that probably realistic sense certainly helped restrain the degree to which secessionism was a serious threat. In, the 18-teens in New England.
0: Hmm. So the, the Hartford Convention is received with the equivalent of a, a sad trombone uh, initially in, in 1815. The impact of the Hartford Convention, though, ended up being, in some ways, arguably profound, right, on the American political scene. What is the impact of the Hartford Convention on the Federalist Party and American politics after the War of
1: 1812? Yeah, that's a great question. It had... Um... A short-term impact on partisan politics, and then a a longer-term impact on kind of the political culture of uh, America. In the short term, the taint of Hartford, which because of all the ties to treason and all the things we were discussing earlier, plus the tremendously old-school nature of most leading Federalists and their inability to kind of adapt to changing American political norms, led to the collapse of the Federalist Party. It held on into the 1820s in certain places in New England, but even regionally, it was marginalized in the late 18-teens, pretty soon after the war. That's why it was Federalists who led the charge, the rallying cry of, hey, you know what would be awesome after the war? Is we had an era of good feelings in which we were welcomed with open (laughs) arms into the, say, the Monroe administration, and all past crimes were forgotten. I didn't know it was them pushing for that. I thought it was Monroe saying, isn't it
0: great we all get along because I won re-election unanimously, basically, except for one dissenting vote in the Electoral College in 1820.
1: No, he was open to that for that reason. And he he loved the idea of being George Washington 2.0, kind of ruling above politics and uh, partisanship. But the kind of initial impetus was for kind of penitent, half-ashamed, still ambitious Federalists who would like to carve out some kind of role for themselves in the new post-war political scene who were crying for national unity that would benefit them rather than being marginalized. So in the short term, there's that. In the longer term, in political culture, Hartford became a byword, and Federalists became a byword in American politics. I've been shocked the degree to which, as I've studied antebellum political history, the degree to which federalists is like the ultimate insult. And it's like super flexible. You you see people from across the range of American politics being insulted as federalists. Often, not always, but often if they are leading secessionists or pseudo-secessionists, kind of movement. So the nullifiers in the late 1820s, early 1830s in South Carolina were seen by their opponents and certainly painted by their opponents as being in the Hartford tradition. They were like Federalists of the Hartford school sort of a thing. But that was only one of many ways in which this this political insult was highly adaptable in the longer term in American political culture.
0: So would you say it's fair to say that the critics of the Hartford Convention dominated the popular understanding of what it was about in the years afterwards?
1: Yes, uh, I know of no one who called themselves a Federalist of the Hartford School after the war. <laughs> like, Yeah, uh, that's, who I, that's who I want to be associated with. So it became very quickly and pervaded uh, in, a long, in the longer term a political epithet. In the interest of
0: fairness, in terms of the long-lasting legacy of these arch-federalists, I believe Josiah Quincy, he lived until, I think it was 1864. And during the war, I believe he he corresponded with President Lincoln. And he basically said, like, I'm glad that increasing numbers of fellow Americans have caught up with me and are doing something serious about slavery. Yes,
1: they... um... The Federalists who lived, but also their sons and daughters, not all of them, many of them became leading lights in the abolitionist movement. And then even as the opponents of the Republican Party in the 1850s reproved their sectional appeal as, oh, this is the Federalists all over again. That's how long lasting that insult was. Many Federalists and especially like sons of Federalists said, well, yeah, we're actually carrying on the legacy of our fathers in opposing the undue and perverting power of slaveholders in the American Union. They were not eager to be called Federalists of the Hartford Stamp, but they did see some commonalities with their father's generation in terms of standing up to the slave power. So as a scholar of this
0: period of time and of the the Hartford Convention, if you could sort of wave a wand and have the undivided attention of your your non-specialist fellow citizens... What do you think the most useful takeaway that 21st century Americans can have from the Hartford convention? Why is this something that matters?
1: I think it would center, and this is not only because of events of January, 2021, but it would center on this stuff matters because it does highlight the question of what is legitimate and illegitimate forms of political protests. And... Um, what makes us think that they are legitimate? Are we likely to cheer on the Federalists because we see them protesting slavery? Does that make us, I, I think that does make us more likely to be sympathetic to them. But it does raise questions of when are we sympathetic to and see dissent as patriotic? And when do we see it as illegitimate? I would, I would say that that question and the way it touches on so many other questions, both moral and political, speaks to why it seems relevant right now.
0: That's a good point. It also seems to me like the Hartford Convention is this ultimate negative example of, I can't think of any other instance where a a major political party has self-destructed so quickly over a single act of protest. I mean, even the Democratic Party survived the American Civil War. And, you know, arguably the Whigs... They fell apart over inaction on the on the issue of the expansion of slavery, but it's it's only the Federalists who managed to with to use the parlance of the you know the the clickbait internet with one weird trick. The Federalists managed to destroy their influence nationwide in a relatively short space of time.
1: Yeah, that, that's a great point. I mean, to study the political history of the early American Republic is to appreciate the potential for party chaos and realignment. In a way that Americans who've grown up and only known Democratic and Republican rivalry with the occasional odd Green Party candidate or whatever, just it's hard for us to wrap our minds around. But when uh, in January 2021, people talk about civil war within the today's Republican Party and what does that mean for the future of the Republican Party and all that sort of thing. Those sorts of questions and even the possibility of realignment or, as you point out, like self-destruction of a party uh, seems very familiar to those of us who study the early American Republic.
0: Clearly comparing the Hartford Convention with the assault on the US Congress whilst it was carrying out its constitutional duties, certifying the election results of 2020, but these are both highly charged and to say the least controversial actions that were perceived both in 1815 and today as also very partisan would you draw any parallels between the Hartford Convention and the attack on the Capitol? Or is is that clearly just a bridge too
1: far? Yeah, I actually would lead with one very important distinction between them. In the case of the Hartford Convention delegates, that was a case of a political leadership trying to moderate and contain the rage of their base, as opposed to President Trump and certain congressional Republicans seeking to incite and actually exacerbate and direct, literally go down the street kind of direction uh, of the rage of their base. That's what I would lead with as a key distinction between them. That's a really good point. As we wrap up, what is something you
0: are currently working on that you're excited about that our audience should check out?
1: Yeah, I'm currently working on a long range as in across a broad period of time study of the Anglo-American politics of slavery the ways in which Britons and Americans use slavery as a concept but also as a rhetorical device uh, as well as a reality against each other in different forms of politics from I'm interested especially from the American revolutionary era through the American Civil War era and uh The part of that right now that I'm working on that seems most relevant to what we've been talking about is during the Revolutionary War, the degree to which the term rebel was highly contested by both sides, and that ended up implicating slavery in interesting ways. It begins with the British ministry calling the American patriots a bunch of rebels and traitors who deserve to be treated as such. But then the American patriots and their allies in Britain contesting that term, saying that they were acting in the tradition of the Glorious Revolution and the principles that were meant to guide British politics ever since 1688. So the real rebels were the ministry themselves, Lord North and all these people passing the Stamp Act and the Coercive Acts and waging war against Americans. They were traitors themselves and rebels to all the was good in the British constitutional tradition. That part is endlessly interesting to me, the contestation over that term. But then the degree to which slavery becomes implicated in that, because then early in the war in 1775, Lord Dunmore, the royal governor of Virginia, invites all slaves and indentured servants who are willing to fight for His Majesty George III against these rebels to join them, and they would give them their freedom So that allowed the Americans to turn around and say, aha, you're not only rebels against the British constitutional tradition, you're trying to stir up a slave rebellion. So the real rebellion times two is on your side. That's a shorthand version of the complicated way in which those things got contested. And to me, that's endlessly interesting along the lines of what we were talking about before, something that starts out as a protest against a war ends up somehow implicating slavery. And now here we are talking about slavery again.
0: What is something that somebody else is working on that you would
1: recommend to our audience? That's a good question. Uh, There's so much. But right now, in part because I'm teaching the American Civil War era class here, I've been focused on this wave of scholarship that does seem relevant to what we were, were talking about today on Northerners resisting the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 this draconian act that stripped the rights of accused runaways and also really abridged the rights of Northern states to have a say on whether free black people or runaway slaves were sent into slavery. And that resistance took the form of mob protests, violent freeing of of, uh, accused runaway slaves and sending them to freedom in Canada. So it involved resistance to law, but it also involved these questions of what is the appropriate form of dissent When you find a law deeply unjust, it's been fascinating, a kind of wave of scholarship over the last five to 10 years, really focusing our attention on that struggle over the Fugitive Slave Act as a leading cause of the American Civil War. A very nicely accessible title in that wave of scholarship that I've assigned to my class is a book by Angela F. Murphy called The Jerry Rescue about a case of a mob freeing a runaway slave named Jerry in Syracuse, New York in the 1850s. That that kind of new trend in the scholarship seems to have many of the same concerns that we've been talking about today. Great. Thanks so much.
0: I'll have to check that out. Matthew Mason, thank you so much for stopping by to chat with us today. It's been great. Hopefully we will have you back again soon. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. That's our show. To make sure you don't miss out on any content, follow us on Twitter at Mainly History, where you can also find links to some of the books mentioned in this episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Mainly History.